we're dealing with, uh, I'd said to you before that one of the fascinating things about the New Testament is the number of questions that Jesus asks. He, you know, he makes some statements, but in the book of Matthew alone, there's, there's 106 questions he asks. In the Gospel of Luke, there's about 79 some have, and there's some duplication here, obviously, among the Gospels. But it's just fascinating that Jesus often, instead of making statements, asks questions to clarify matters, to teach, to help people understand uh, the truth about God. And so we, we've sort of been looking at that. And I, and I suggested that for the next few weeks, however long it takes us, that we're going <clears> to <throat> deal with four questions that I think uh, all of life at some point comes back to. I teach my students that any time they teach or any time they're involved in life, that generally something that they're dealing with comes back to one of these questions. First one is, we said and discussed, is there a God? Is there a good probability? And we talked about probability versus possibility. Is there a God? <clears throat> and if you answer that yes, then the next question would be, the one we're on now, then what kind of God is this? What, what is the character or the nature of this God? That's going to be pretty important. That's what we're working on now. The third question would be, Okay, if there is a God, and this is this God's character, then third, what does this God expect from me? What does this God, if in fact there is a God, and there is a God of a particular nature, then what does this God expect of me or from me? That's the question. Then the fourth question that we'll end up with uh, in this series is, then what, because of the character of God and because of what he expects of me, what can I expect from this God? What can I expect? Uh, we'll get into the area of, I think, that where there's lots of pain and difficulty in people's lives is because of expectations that may or may not be biblical. The expectations people have on God that may or may not be biblical. And so we're going to be looking at that. So the, the, the role of questions, the, the role of importance of questions. Now, it makes me think of this. I have a friend that just about every time he sees me, um, he, and this is actually very painful for me to talk about today um, uh, because when I was taking Greek uh, years ago, uh, there is a um, thing we had to do. We would learn what we call diphthongs. And uh, diphthongs are two vowels that go together. E-I is A, you know. Um, A-I is I, like that. This one always uh, really bothered me. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to take it. I'm a, I, I'm a man. I can take this. I'm going to take it. Uh, this is um, the diphthong, <laughs> uh, and it's pronounced ooh. Yeah, so. When I was in Greek, though, I was uh, in class, and w the guy that this happened with is in uh, the pastor at Chartel Church of God on the south side of town, Steve Childs. Uh, I'll get him someday. Um, that uh, when we were in class one time, when I started taking Greek, I already told you, you know, when I first started taking Greek, I only knew a verb and a noun, and I, I knew what an adjective was because Kurt Gowdy taught me that in the World Series. <laughs> he said of Brooks Robinson, he's great, he's fantastic. What other adjective could you use to describe it? That's it. That's all I knew. So when we got the diphthongs, uh, we're, we're in class, and we all got our little briefcases, and we look like, you know, little college students, and Dr. Miller, who was uh, frightful for most of us, uh, Dr. Miller sometimes, if chapel went over, he would go to class and start lecturing, and nobody's in there. 
This guy's rigid. You, I should say I'm rigid. In fact, one time my buddy Don Medley walked in and Dr. Miller said, welcome, uh, Mr. Medley. We're on page 74. And Don goes. <clears throat> so I was pretty shook up about Miller. He, 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 he had a reputation and was very difficult. So we get to these diphthongs and he asked me the question, Mr. Sanders, how do you pronounce this? Steve Childs is sitting right beside me and he's messing with me. He's saying, he's going to get you. He's going to get you. He's going to get you. And I'm listening to Steve. And so the question was, how do you pronounce this? And I went, this again is instructive. Ow. Not ooh. Like yesterday. Ow. Ow. Right, Doug? Ow. Dr. Miller, Dr. Miller says to me, Mr. Sanders, how do you pronounce this? And I went, ow. Again. I did not hear him when he said, no, it's ooh. Childs, who's this pastor, and you should never go to that church. You should never trust him. He's an evil person. Steve says to me, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. And you're, you're going down. Miller asked me the third time, Mr. Sanders, how do you pronounce this word? And I went, ow. Now, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I am so nervous because of this question. My vision begins to do this. I begin to get dizzy, and I almost pass out sitting down over a Greek question. Now, I don't want you passing out over questions, <laughs> but there are some questions like these that are really important. Not, can you pronounce a diphthong? Not, do you know what OU is? Which, again, I think it was prophetic for me. Ow. <laughs> what are these questions? What is this God like? Now, I want to ask you to consider the questions that matter. What is God like? That's the question. The questions that matter. I mean, that question mattered that day in class. Now, every time I, Steve and I have known each other for 40 years, and every time he sees me, he'll say, so how do you pronounce O-U? <laughs> I told you, don't go to that church. He's not a man of God. He's not a man of God. It's right down from the school. So... The questions that matter here, that, that question mattered some in class. Uh, it continues to matter in my relationship with him. But this question, what is this God like, matters. Now, I want to I ask you to do this. We've got just a little, a little bit of review. Um, and I'm just going to run through this quick. And you can listen to this on the recording from last week. But one of the things why this is so important, I think, is this. Here's the, I think I've got this statement on here. Yeah. If your conception of God is false. Now, Temple says radically false. Then the more devout you are, and devout means serious, religious, careful, attentive, you know, more devout you are, the worse it will be for you. You're opening your soul to be molded by something base. You had much better be an atheist. I read this quote in seminary, and it knocked me down to say, Cliff, you better pay attention to this question. You better spend some time on this. Because if my view of God is wrong, then my soul is being molded by something that is less than godly. And Temple says, who was the archbishop, if you will, of Canterbury, said it'd be better for you to be an atheist than to be molded by this. And so I, I, I want to review this here for a second. I want to remind you that we talked about last week that, that some of the things, and right under review, I think I've jumped up a little bit. Go back to the front page here. You've got right, un, right under here, we're just, this is review here, okay? Uh, 
one of the things that I've discovered in answering this question with people over the years is that most all of us have distorted views of God. Now, now, now distorted, what I mean by that? Distorted. Distorted means there's something out of balance, probably. There's some feature or something about our view of God that may be overemphasized, or there are some distortions where it's underemphasized. And it's just, it's just normal. It seems to be part of our inability, perhaps, to, to comprehend uh, everything. Like Augustine said, if you understand everything about God, it's not God. <laughs> uh, so this idea of distortion, uh, the, the problem with that, <clears throat> I showed you a picture a couple weeks ago of a car. The problem with distortions is there's enough truth in it to be dangerous. There's enough truth in it to be dangerous. Uh, for instance, I, my dad and I used to talk all the time about this. Uh, I know, I've known people that think you can, if you'll exercise, you can eat anything you want to. And that's not true. I, know, I got a bunch of people saying, yeah, no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> you know, that's a distortion of the value of exercise. I mean, it, it's okay. I got, see, a couple, I got a couple of friends back here saying they're going home after today because it was said in church. It's true, right? <laughs> That, that's a distortion to the truth of the value of exercise. It, it certainly exercises a value, but it doesn't mean that you can push that out to that extreme, right? So, so the nature of a distortion is there's some truth that's a bit out of balance. And all of us, I think, probably at some time or another have had to wrestle with this. Uh, uh, there are distortions in all things in life. You know, uh, some people come into marriage with distorted ideas, like it's this person's job to make me happy. And then you find out that's not true. <laughs> or, or, or that, that if we, if we really love each other, we will never have any problems, right? You know, okay. There, there's some truth. If we love one another, we'll work through them. So there's the, the nature of distortions is there's some truth to it. Now, I said two, uh, wh why do we have these distorted ideas? Do we want them? There are two ways that we get them. One is through significant relationships early in life. Through significant relationships early in life. There's a lot of research on this. Yale uh, School of uh, Pediatrics, uh, Dr. James Dobson, who's done a lot of work in pediatric uh, 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 cognitive formation, that, that the idea is that significant relationships early in life form us. They have something to do with the way we see reality. I tell my students, some of them grew up in homes where their significant relationships taught them, there wasn't the words, but they were taught, you're in the way. We didn't want you. So there's, there's all kinds of things that happen through these significant relationships. The other way that we typically get these distortions is what I call uncritical reflection on life. Uncritical reflection on life. We far too often blame God for things he doesn't have anything to do with, okay? And I said last week, and I, I, I feel some compulsion here to say, I, I, uh, I made a couple of statements about the, the nature of God's control or in charge. We're going to deal with that in very much detail when we get to the fourth question, what can I expect from God? Because the question really is there in this idea, is God in charge or in control or what's the difference here? So sometimes because we don't reflect on life carefully, we attribute all kinds of things to God that if you stop for a minute and thought, what? Wait a minute. Hold on here. And often it happens in tragedies and difficulties. Um, you know, I, I, my wife and I, we went through the uh, November, or not November, the uh, May 3rd tornado in 99. Missed us by about a block and a half. You know, I, 
I have friends that said, well, you know, God really must have been watching out for you. And I just stopped them and I said, stop it. Don't say that. Because what's the implication? He wasn't looking out for everybody else. I mean, I remember standing up in a Sunday school class here saying, stop. Don't say that. I'm not fun to be in a Sunday school class. <laughs> I, I will actually talk back. <laughs> I did. I said, hold, hold, hold. Stop right here. Just stop. Just a minute. I can't let this lie here. I can't. I mean, I'm thankful I'm alive. But don't tell me God was looking out for me. And all these other people are dead. Because I'm certainly not more important than them. You can be thankful. You can be grateful. You know, I'm not smart enough to know. So the idea of uncritical reflection on life gets our view of God sometimes twisted up. Okay. Then I said last week, real quick, we're hurrying here. Uh, there are a couple of real distortions that I've seen over time. One is the overvalued conscience where people just default and say, if my conscience tells me it's wrong, it's wrong. That's just not true. Your conscience could be very uninformed, right? So that you think some things are okay and they're not. Or you think some things are not and they are. So an overvalued conscience. You're giving your conscience way too much credit. Another, uh, another uh, uh, distortion is what I call the 110% God. The God who just wants you to work, you know, that's it. That's all he cares about. So uh, I want to talk about what these have done. I, I think that in this kind of review that what we have then uh, is I want to try to get uh, to some, um, uh, on the back here, I want to get to some matters here. Here we go. I, I just want to get in your mind this, that what I think happens is because of these distortions is there's an erosion that begins to take place. Our confidence in God begins to erode. I, I just thought I, I want to put a picture in your brain. I want, I want to put a picture of this, this erosion. It isn't cataclysmic, usually. It isn't that sometimes people just finally say, I don't believe God anymore. There's a slow process of erosion with these distortions. They begin to move the ground out from under. Until, for some people, there is an event that it finally says, I'm out. I, this isn't working. I'm out. Forget it. It isn't true. Uh, I was looking at another one here. You know what you do when you have some erosions? What do you do? You have to put some, some, uh, uh, what are those? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, stones, rocks like that to stop the erosion. Something of substance. I want you to see this picture too, because what we're going to do is we're going to try to begin today to put some things of substance biblically into our thinking as it relates to who God is. This, this erosion that can happen can happen over time, but we have to stop it somehow with some ways, and there are other ways, so that, that erosion. I like this picture um, here that to stop that kind of erosion, uh, that there is then uh, some kind of building with rocks and things to stop it because it's going to happen. If we don't critically reflect on life, life's got enough going on with it that it will start eroding our confidence in who this God is our own lives, our own experiences, this begins that process. So I want to give you some, here we go, here we are, some suggested correct views. Some suggested, um, maybe not all of them, but there's, here's what I'm going to suggest. Uh, over the last 30-something uh, years, I've been kind of working in this area. Uh, this has been an area of research I've been interested in. 
and I've tried to kind of distill. There's a lot of different ideas here, uh, but some correct views. Now, uh, look here at this passage of Scripture. Now we can get past that. Uh, look here at this passage here in Second Peter. Uh, this is kind of the basis, if you will, for thinking uh, we really need to, uh, to consider, uh, if you will, a, a correct view. Notice here uh, what it says here. First, uh, Second Peter. Let me get in the right chapter here. I'm trying to be cool here today, and this electronic Bible is driving me nuts. Here we go. Simon Peter, a servant of, the, of uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who've obtained a faith of equal standing of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior. Now watch this. Here's his prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How? In the knowledge of God and of Jesus. How are we going to have grace and peace multiplied? By knowing God. A knowledge of Him. Notice there it says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is not an ancillary issue or secondary issue. Grace and peace are multiplied as we come to a more coherent, if you would say a more biblical, a more accurate understanding of the nature of God. That's my assertion. That's, that's, my, that's my, a, a, a matter of asserting here as to stop the erosion that begins to happen as we uh, have these things happen in our lives. So here we go. Suggested first view. I'm hurrying right along, aren't I? Here we go. Uh, a God is consistent with the revelation and person of Jesus. Now this is going to be kind of the high watermark here. I'm going to start high and work my way down. But turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, just back a couple of books from uh, where we were in first, our Second Peter. Hebrews chapter 1, where uh, this uh, fascinating uh, book uh, sort of opens up with these words here. Uh, follow along if you want to in Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, this is, this, is, this, is where, this is where the writer says, I'm going to now contrast this. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. And he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, you might just underline that. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification of sins, he sat down at the majesty, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, what the writer here is attempting to do, in my judgment, the writer of Hebrews is writing to people who've been followers of Jesus for some time. Let me just kind of give you the, the, the map here. It, it appears that, that there, are in, there is in this book um, a danger. And I, maybe this will help some. There's a danger in the book of Hebrews. It isn't cussing or, that's not good, but, uh, you know, or, or stealing. Again, I don't, I don't, we don't recommend that around here. Um, but there's, the real danger is that these believers or followers of Jesus will go back to Judaism. That's the danger. Not, not that they're having problems or trouble, but they're going to, you know, they're under such duress. They've been followers of Jesus for a while. It's getting tougher. 
And so they're, they're, they're under duress to go back. Now, let me, let me tell you why that's important. I've heard this all my life, and rarely anybody comment on it. So I'm, on, I'm in dangerous territory right here, okay? That's because in Hebrews 12.1 it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with perseverance, casting aside every weight of encumbrance uh, and, uh, every and the sin that so easily entangles us. The sin. Not a sin. That's not your pet problem. That's not your recurring difficulty. This is not a sin that entangles you. This is the sin. The definite article in Greek is never used accidentally, nor is it used without purpose. It's attempting to define, okay? The sin. The car. Not a car. The car. The sin that keeps entangling them is the temptation to go where? Back. Why? That's what they know. That's where they've been. You think about it. The pomp and circumstance of Judaism and the high priest and the temple and all this stuff. And they, 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 serve, they serve somebody who's invisible. They don't have a temple. They have a high priest in heaven. Everything is invisible to them. Everything in Judaism is visible. And you know, like I do, that human beings are tactile, sight-oriented, and if I can see it and feel it and touch it, it's more real, right? Right? The sin that they're battling with is not cussing or, you know, drinking too much or, or you know, this is, this is a specific sin. And it's the sin of apostasy of going back. You got to look at that. I mean, that's what it says there. I, I mean, all my life, I've, you know, the sin that really entangles you. I'm thinking, well, okay, I got a couple things here. You know, there's nothing, not one. I got three. Anybody? Anybody besides me? Right? Bunch of liars. <laughs> there's a sin here, and this whole book is attempting, attempting to say them. You know, I think in terms of movies. Um, you know, um, I have a good friend. I when I hear this passage and I hear what we're going to talk about here. I think of Braveheart. Now y'all have to watch that because y'all are Christians, right? Yeah. yeah. Remember what he says? Hold. Hold. Right? Hold. Becky says, why are you watching that again? I said, because you've seen the sound of music 18 times. <laughs> and I had to watch it five. So this is working it out of my system. I got to see some battles. I got to see something happen here. This doe deer stuff has got to get out of my brain. I don't think, hey, just I'm telling you, when I'm teaching, I'm not thinking doe a deer. Uh, I'm thinking hold. <laughs> yeah. This, this is what, this is what the writer is saying. Hold. Why? Here it is. Jesus is the final word. He's the, listen, he's, he's the final word. I'm going to show you how that works out in this passage. I'm going to look. Let, me say it, let me say it this way. Whatever you believe about God, no matter where you find it, has got to line up with Jesus. Now, you may have all kinds of ideas in your head. That's okay. But they cannot be determinative here. He's 
the final word. Whatever, boy, this is going to be tough here. Whatever we read in the Old Testament is partial, it's imperfect, it's incomplete. It's all moving towards you. Let me show you here. I, I, I made a slide here. I'm pretty proud of myself here. You see, it says long ago God spoke. But what else? Look at verse 2. But in these last days. Here's the contrast. I'm going to put the, that word but there in chapter 2. I'm going to get on both sides of this now. Here's the contrast on both sides. God spoke long ago, and you know what? He spoke in these days. What's that right now? He, when, when the writer of Hebrews is writing, he said, he's, he's spoken in these days. Okay? So here's the contrast. Second, he spoke in many ways. See it there? But God, after many times and many ways, spoke. How did he speak this time? One way. See it? Watch here. In the past, who? Who did he speak to? To the fathers. Who did he speak to this time? Us. You see these contrasts on both sides of that verse right there? That's how it's working. See? Long ago, now. Many ways, one. To the fathers, to us. Here's the last one. By the prophets, by a son. This kind of structure, this kind of contrast here, this kind of, of, of nuance that, that the writer of Hebrews is attempting to do is saying this. Hey, look, this is the final word, okay? We can value long ago. We can value the many ways. We can value the fathers. We can value the prophets. Thank God for it. Great. But when it comes to a decision about what we know about God, it comes to these last days, to the one way, to us by a son. That, that structure there by this writer is kicking this book off to say, listen up and hold. You with me? Does that make sense? See that there? He's the final word. You know, you, you sometimes talk to people and, and, and I will say to them, yeah, I know you read that in Leviticus, or, but does that sound like Jesus? Huh? It's a big deal, guys. It's a big, big struggle here that whatever we know in the old is partial, long ago. And, and it's important. It's building. But now we have the complete, full, final revelation. Now, I will tell you this, and I say this to my students. Be careful here. Jesus is more complicated than a Hallmark card. Okay? He's a little more complicated than a Hallmark card. Okay? Don't, don't, don't fall into this kind of sentimentalism. Jesus, I would say this, from what I can read, except for the Syrophoenician woman, and he comes around to that. Jesus never rejected a request for need. He never rejected people. Jesus was responded. Jesus was for people on the margins. On the, he, he always responds to people who feel their need. The woman caught in adultery. The, the woman washing his feet in, Mark, in, John, or in Luke 7 when it says she's weeping. And Jesus said her sins which were many been forgiven because she's loved much. Jesus never resisted. I, I, I give you this quote. I gave it to you last week, but re, write it again. Because it's this. Grace being the nature that it is, is always attracted to need. 
grace being the nature that it is. See, grace does, isn't a reward. Grace isn't you've been a good boy, Cliff. Grace isn't you've worked hard, now we'll make a... No, grace being what it is, grace being its nature that it is, is attracted to need. You never, you never have to worry. I never have to worry. If I'll be honest about my need, that Jesus won't be attracted to that. He, you don't have to get Him to come. He's a, look at it. He's attracted why? That's the nature of grace. It doesn't look for reward. It doesn't look for merit. It doesn't look for accomplishment. What does grace look for? Need. Need. Now that's Jesus. There's no question about that. But there also is, you know, Jesus was pretty rough on people who thought they didn't have any needs, right? He's pretty stout with them. You remember a guy some years ago in Sunday school out of, out of uh, Matthew 10 where, where Jesus said, hey, don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide people. A mother against her children. A man against his wife. Look, my loyalty to me is number one. There's no hedge in here. Somebody go, what? I said, yeah, have you read that? Yeah. So, so we, we want to be, because I, I just tell you this, I, I don't think in my own training in seminary like that, I don't think I studied the Gospels enough. I don't think I did. I love Paul. I like uh, this kind of uh, discursive, uh, uh, what we call discursive analytical epistolary kind of, you know what the epistles are, I've told you many times, the wives of the apostles. And uh, we got a couple of new people. They like that. Come on. Uh, I, I just like that, that literature because it's very argumentative. I don't know how that would ever work with me. No, not me. But I don't think I spent enough time studying Jesus. I'm serious. For the last three or four years, I have just purposely stayed out of the epistles. I'll jump in every once in a while just to read something I like. But my studies have been in the Gospels. And I'm constantly saying, Jesus, I need to understand you more. I need to get a good view and picture of you. I think I've got a lot of other things rolling around there. So Jesus is the final word. I read this because I didn't make this up, but I can't find it. You know, uh, and that's a bad thing. I tell my students, uh, you should always get your documentation in order. But I, but I memorized this, so I know it, it didn't come out of my brain. This is too smart for me. But... David Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great Baptist pastor in Europe, made this statement. And I can't find it. I'm still going to find it one of these days. Somewhere it's in a book. You know, one of those things that you close. Like that. He said this. We will reject any view of God that is inconsistent with the person of Jesus. Now, that probably means we need to study him more so we don't get all hallmarky on him. But we're going to reject any view of God that is inconsistent with the person of Jesus. Now, here's the zinger that he said that I, again, the thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, its elders or leadership, even if we find it in the Bible. I, I think what he's referring to is this. The long ago, the many ways, that water, what? Partial. Incomplete, building, necessary, 
but incomplete. It's even if we find that we that our formation of our understanding of the nature of God has got to find its full and complete understanding in the person of Jesus. Man, that that's where I want to be. I want to know Him more. I'm, I'm spending more time in the Gospels than I ever had my entire life, and I'm begging. Well, not begging. You don't have to beg Him, but I'm just saying, Jesus. I want to know you. I want to see you in this passage. Help me understand what's going on here. He's the final word. Here's another thing. He's the full word. He's the full word. Notice what it says here. Verse 3. I don't have time to unpack all this, but there's a couple of ideas right here I want to give you. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Now, now when Jews read this, when they thought about the radiance, they thought of the Shekinah, or the the manifest presence of God. You know, uh, or Shekinah, it's pronounced differently. Uh, uh, The Shekinah was always understood as the manifest presence of God. So what's he saying? They're saying, hey, this Jesus, he's the manifest presence of God. Like that shining, burning cloud, or that when, when Solomon dedicated the temple, when the presence of God came in, it was so strong that they couldn't finish it. This cloud comes in. When we were in Israel a few years ago, it was kind of interesting because at the, at the wailing wall there, there's a sign that says, the Shekinah never leaves this place. And I thought, that's interesting. Because the Shekinah is the manifest presence of God. And I'm not trying to be goofy. I'm just going, okay, where is he? Where is he? The the, the Shekinah, where is he? I didn't see anything. Yeah, 70 AD, the whole place went down. See, the writer's saying this. When you look at God and you see, or you look at Jesus This is the manifest presence right in front of you. Now, that's a crazy idea when you think about it. The resurrection proves it to be true. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of His nature. Notice that verse 3 there. Now, different translations uh, uh, go there. The Greek word here, nature, or the exact imprint, is a translation of the... It's, it's interesting. It's, it sounds like English. Caricature. That's the word in Greek. Character. Caricature. It really means an engraving tool that you would engrave something, and there it is right there. But this idea of exact imprint is the idea of an identical stamp of who God is. He's the full word. Nothing else to say. He's the final word, and he's the full word. So if I look at Jesus, then I see God. So my view of God has got to get lined up. I I remember years ago, I was working with a friend of mine in in Louisiana. And uh, I asked them to draw me a picture of God. Now this person had taught Sunday Bible school and, and uh, been in church all of her life. 
And she drew it. It's a terrible rendition here, but but she. This is the face of God. No, he's not smiling. He's mad. And all this. And this is Jesus on the cross. And all these terrible things are coming from here. And so I said, okay, I want I want to talk to you about this. Tell me about this picture. So well, this is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. You know. And I said, who's this? She said, well, this is God pouring his wrath out on him and, and, and punishing him. Okay, who's this? She says, Jesus. I said, who's Jesus? She had no concept he was God. And, and I said, you, you think these two are separate here? You think that Jesus is not God? I'm seeing some other people going, yep, I think that's what I thought. And I thought, wait a minute. Look, I'm not here to unwrap all the Trinity idea, but I can tell you this. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Colossians 1 said, in him, Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled in bodily form. The fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. And I thought, if you've got this kind of disconnection, that Jesus is a good guy and he might be a pro, you know, but he's but he's not God taking on the sin of the world. What a disconnect. How did that happen? I don't know. I don't know. But he's the full word because he's the exact imprint. He is God in the flesh. I was talking to my students the other day, you know, I, interesting, the gospel of Matthew has this kind of idea of Jesus, God being with us, that in Matthew 1, the book of Matthew begins with uh, Mary gets the name, calls his name. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. What? Not, not, not God for us. God with us. In the flesh. It's always been fascinating to me when you read the Gospel of Mark if you, or, or Matthew, if you read it and look at that, the, the idea of he... It is God with us. If you read Matthew, it ends how? Go and make disciples. I'll be with you. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The Gospel of Matthew starts with God with us and ends with the promise, I'll be with you. So this notion of, of God, Jesus being the final word in the floor. So here's what I ask. Here's the application. It's not on your outline here. But here's it. Here it is. I'm trying to work with pictures a little bit. This is the final inspection so a circuit board. I have no idea I'm making this up as I go, so just stay with me. Okay, saw the picture, thought it was cool. That's some kind of tool. <laughs> have no idea. Again, here's what I want you to do this week. When you have thoughts about God, the final inspection is, is it consistent with the person of Jesus? If it isn't, ask yourself, why isn't it? If it isn't, why isn't it? And if it isn't, then what do I need to do about this? What do I need to change in my thinking? Consciously. Consciously. What is it? Because Jesus is the final inspection. The final inspector. Okay? Whew. This took a little longer than I thought. Okay, we're going to move on to the second one here. This is an important... I'm going to go to the Old Testament now. I know I've, I, I, I've, I've talked about Jesus in the uh, New Testament or the final word, but I want, to, I want us to look at this. Uh, this is the, the notion 
that God has your best interest at heart. Go there to Deuteronomy. Go to your table of contents in the Bible if you have a physical Bible. If you don't have or you have a, a tablet or whatever, go, go there. And this is a fascinating event in the Old Testament because this is the recording. This is the recording of Moses reporting back to Israel. Here's what God said at Sinai when I met with him. This is, this is what he said. And, and I, it's always been fascinating. Um, these words, verse, I'm going to start at verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. This is the Shekinah, folks. <laughs> and he did not, and he did no more. And he, and he, I'm in the, yeah, he wrote on tablet, gave them. Verse 23, and as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst while you were in the mountain was burning with fire, and darkness while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads and the tribes, and you said, behold, the Lord, wait a minute, I'm in the wrong verse here, aren't I? Yeah. See, y'all should have seen that. <laughs> we're 28. I don't know. Where did I get 20? I got it right here. Here we go. And the Lord heard, yeah, whew. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. This is Moses. And the Lord said to me, I've heard the words of these people, which they've spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them always to keep my commandments. Why? That it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. Verse 33, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that, what? It may go well with you. Go over to chapter 6. Same phrase. Hear therefore, O Israel, verse 3, and be careful to do them. He's referring to the commandments. Why? That it may go well with you. Now, here's, here's a, an important piece if we're going to say what kind of God is this. I was older than I want to admit, and I won't tell you the actual date. But I obeyed God mostly because I thought he might hurt me <laughs> or punish me. As I got smarter, I thought maybe he'll reward me. <laughs> I never had in my mind that God wanted me to obey me, but obey him for my good. That was a contrary thought in my mind. I don't know where I picked this up. I'm not blaming anybody. I just know that was what in my head. God was the biggest gorilla on the block, and you did what he said, or you paid the price. And so the idea of doing what I would do or to obey him or to follow him. Why? That it might go well with you was completely foreign to me. Until as I began to study the scriptures more and say, wait a minute. This phrase keeps showing up. This statement keeps occurring that I want you to do this so it will go well with you. That, that's why when I don't, when I don't do what God said, what happens? It doesn't go well. Is that because God's mad at me? No. He knows if I do what he says, it will be what? Well for me. You know, I, 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 met a, I, met a, I met a family when I was in Houston years ago. They had a mortuary. 
Uh, funny that Becky's kind of in that business now, but uh, with the church. But they had a mortuary, and I carried out groceries at this grocery store. And, you know, uh, uh, I, I carried out, it's a real ritzy part of Houston, out by the Galleria. This one lady I would take out groceries for, she had a baby blue XKE Jaguar 12 cylinder. I asked her, what do you do with that car? So, well, I go to the grocery store. Really, I'm not kidding you. And I said, uh, here's my card. If you ever need to blow that thing out, uh, come, c- come see me. You know, uh, I I was I was working in school and trying to figure out, you know, what was it about my obedience? Was it that God really had my best interest at heart? And I, you know, I try to witness to people. And I tell them, well, you know, you better do what God says because if you don't, you'll be in trouble. Instead of, it's the best for you. So this lady starts talking to me. And she tells me that they went to Germany and bought a Mercedes. Uh, these people had some money. And uh, I've always remember, you all, you know, I'm in college. And, you know. <laughs> anyway, they bought a Mercedes and drove it around and brought it back on a ship, I guess, or something. And then they came back and they hired a guy to go drive that car back to them to Houston. Okay. And apparently this guy didn't know too much about cars. Uh, he pulls up. And gets ready and, and driven, you know, three or 400 miles and pulls up and fills the car up, you know, uh, with gas. Oh, it got almost out of the parking lot before the motor melted. It was a diesel. <laughs> you don't put gasoline in a diesel engine. Just note to yourself here if you don't know that, okay? You know, this is the idea. That car didn't do that because it was mad at him. That car will not go well on gasoline, right? It won't work. It's just that's just the way it doesn't work. Listen, you and I weren't built for sin. You and I weren't built for this. When it, when it gets in us, it doesn't go well. And I will take this again, thoughts and opinions across the community church. I say thoughts and opinions the church. That's me. I don't think God punishes sin. Ooh. I don't. I think sin will punish you. Oh, I think there'll be a day when there's going to be a reckoning. It's another movie. <laughs> ah, God doesn't punish you. Sin will punish you. Have you found that out yet? Go ahead and add that to a relationship and watch what happens. Go ahead and abuse your body and see what happens. God doesn't punish you for that. That's why he's saying, hey, 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 don't do that. Not because he's trying to kill all the funny stuff. It won't go well with you. I want things to go well with you. If you'll follow me. Now, now listen, let me say this. You're never, and I'm never, let me put it on me. I'm never going to obey God when it comes down to something I don't want to do. If I don't genuinely believe he has my best interest at heart, dig around in that a little bit. You and I will never obey God when we don't want to, when it's something contrary to our wishes. We will never do this unless we're convinced he has our best interest at heart. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. I mean, this isn't rocket science. It's saying, look, I want to do this. You don't want me to. I don't trust you. I'm going to do what I want to do, right? This is really important. And I was older than I want to admit whenever I came to this conclusion. And it's still a struggle. 
I still have to battle and say, wait a minute, Cliff, do you really believe that if you'll do what God says, it will go well with you? I've got some history in that. You do too, don't you? You've got some history in this. To be able to say, you know what, when I've done what God said, it was difficult, it wasn't easy, but it was well for us. We, we were able to look ourselves in the face. We were able to, to be people of integrity. We were able to trust God through that problem. You've got some history with this. Let, let, me, let me give you an image and we'll get out of here. I have a good buddy named Russ Korth. died a few years ago. Russ, Russ was so helpful to me. I want to, I want to distill this idea into this, this phrase. It's, it's Russ's actually. Here it is. I'll give you a picture. Don't touch the hot stove. You want to touch it? It won't go well. That's all this is. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Don't touch the hot stove. This is God saying to us, I have your best interest at heart. I know how you're made. I know how this thing works. And man, if there was ever a day, our culture is so messed up right now. If we as followers of Jesus could demonstrate, not talk about, not declare, but demonstrate that following Jesus and doing it his way means things go well for us. Boil it down. Don't touch hot stove. That's all it is. That's all God's saying. That's why I'm saying God doesn't, the stove doesn't punish you. The stove does what it does. It burns you. God doesn't punish us for sin. Sin will punish us because that's what sin does. It brings death and destruction and sorrow and difficulty and, and, and disruption. We've got to have this concept about I, I'm telling you, I don't think you can go anywhere in this relationship. You'll, you'll just do things out of grit duty. I'll just do it because I have to. Here's a great statement by a guy named Mike Bickle. I don't believe everything Mike's. I don't believe everything I'm saying sometimes. I'm trying to, is that really true, Cliff? <laughs> I'm working that out. I love this statement. You'll never have more passion for God than you know he has for you. You'll, you'll never have more passion for God than you know he has for you. First John 4, 19, we love him. Because he first loved us. Look, if you grew up in a church like I did, that obedience was this gritting your teeth and not enjoying life, but at least you're not going to hell. That's a miserable way to live. You know, I don't believe this stuff. I'm, I'm, I think God's a monster. He's trying to manipulate me all the time. Instead of Cliff, it'll go well with you. Do, you. do you think God knows how life is supposed to work? Does he know how relationships are supposed to work? D does he know how our influence is supposed to work? I think he does. So I'm going to ask you on this one. The first one is put everything through that grid. I'm going to ask you something. Do you believe this? That God has your best interest at heart. 
again, back to the question, if you don't, why? Why not? Is it that he doesn't know enough? You're not smart enough? Or, or some might say, you know what? This whole idea that God is even interested in my life is beyond me. Like there's 4 billion people, you know, or whatever. I don't know the number. There's a lot. I think some of us worry. I don't, I don't, I don't think we think God is our best. Interest. I don't think we think he has any capacity to know us or any interest. I, mean, I can't imagine God being concerned about me. When I've flown in an airplane before, you know, I'm looking along and I'm looking out and, you know, uh, and I look down and think, wow, who, who would that be? And I'm thinking, well, that's, is that the way God sees everything? Oh, no, no. See, Augustine said it like this, and I'll stop with this. The great uh, African bishop. When he said, when you look for God, now this is a little thorny for me because I've got to work through it. When you look for God, don't look out. Look in. Don't look, that's Augustine. Don't look out. Look in. He's closer than your breath. Somehow he's able to know you and to know me. And, and so some of us don't think God is, because we're not even convinced he's capable of paying that kind of attention to us. Why do you think that? You know, why, why do you think that? That's an important question to answer. See, these are all big questions. Is there a God? What's he like? Or what's this God like? So, so this week, Ask the question, do I believe this? Lord Jesus, we need your help. Some of us in this room have battled with shame and messages from authoritative figures in our life that have just crippled us in some ways. And for some of us, um, the idea that you even know anything about us at all is hard to believe. Or that you might know us or that you might have any interest in us. Help us this week to ask why do we believe that? And how can we adjust that by knowing who you are, Jesus? We need your help. We want our views of you to be more correct. We don't know that we'll ever get them absolutely correct, but we want them more correct than they are. And we take your word here as best we can understand it to inform us and transform us. Pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.